Now, good morning. We will be in Luke 19 today. Even though it's a little dark and rainy outside, it is springtime. And springtime for me means that I'm starting a new diet. Eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Except you can't say diet anymore. Apparently that went out with tab soda, right? Now you have to say, I'm understanding how food works. Or I'm doing a lifestyle overhaul, right? Nonetheless, eating healthy remains a big part of what I read this week was a $320 billion global annual industry. A lot of big money to be made in vitamins, health products, even skincare products, all of that stuff, supplements, all that stuff. But as I I was reading the article, I was amazed. uh, The main advertising technique that the marketers are going to use is the same one they used back in the 40s to sell these diet lifestyle change products. You know what it is? Their main gimmick, they said in the article, is still the before and after picture, right? We've all seen this, the before shot, the after shot. And I saw one this week. I'm going to put up the, try to put up here really briefly, not too long, but really brief. My favorite before and after shot. There we go. So what you see on the left, the before you go on the diet plan. On the right, the after you go on the diet plan. See the big change in the different people. Okay, that's good enough of the picture. But uh, why that was my favorite was I read, you know how long it took them to make this transformation? Two hours. Two hours. These people volunteered for a total scam to see if with spray-on tan or changes in posture, you know, from this to this or all kinds of lighting tricks, they could actually pull off a before and after gimmick. And most of us intuitively, when we see these things, we're like, I don't know if that's real. But they still work. That's still the main ploy of the industry. And I thought, why in the world do they still use these things, even though we know they can be fake these days? The reason is, I think, is because inside of us, we really want to see authentic change. When it comes to a transformational type of industry, we want the product to be validated. We want to see a move from out of shape to in shape, right? We want evidence. And I want you to keep that concept in mind today when we go to the scriptures, because this idea rings in our text. This idea, just as true change distinguishes the diet, we'll see that authentic change also glorifies the God, right? Authentic change will validate or glorify our God. We're in our sermon series. It's called Forever Change, People Who've Experienced the Power of God. And we're now in Luke 19. That's the story of Zacchaeus. story of Zacchaeus. You might remember it from your childhood. The wee little man song, right? Maybe somebody sang that to you, but... Jesus doesn't emphasize that as much as an illustration. He gives this story as an illustration of his mission to seek and save the lost. In other words, Jesus came to change people who needed it. He didn't come for the well. He came for the sick, to turn Yahweh rejectors into people who would delight in the one true living 
God. And the transformation says something not just about Zacchaeus who gets changed, but about Jesus. Specifically, he is worthy of our trust because he is validated in the change of his people. God is glorified. So before we look at this text today together, I want to pray. I want to pray with you a prayer from the prayer book, The Valley of Vision. I think it's appropriate for today. So if you bow your heads and pray with me now as we approach the scriptures. Oh, my saving God, help us. Help us now. We're so slow to learn. We're so prone to forget, so weak to climb. We're in the foothills when we should be in the heights. We are pained by our graceless hearts, our prayerless days, our poverty of love, our sloth in the heavenly race, our solely conscious, our wasted hours, our unspent opportunities. We're blind while your light shines all around us. Oh, Lord, take the scales from our eyes. Grind the dust, the unbelief of our hearts. Make it this morning our chiefest joy to study you, to meditate on you, to gaze on you, to sit like Mary at your feet. Lean like John on your breast, appeal like Peter to your love, and count like Paul all other things done. Give us increase and progress in grace today, Father, so that there may be more decision in our character, more vigor in our purposes, more elevation in our lives, more fervor in our devotion, more constancy in our zeal. And may we never seek in the creature what can be found only in you, the creator. Let not faith cease from seeking you until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in us, King of kings and Lord of lords, that we may today live victoriously and in victory attain our end. Show us your glory now, God, through a changed life in your word. We pray in Christ. Amen. Amen. So let's go together here in the scriptures to Luke 19 to get a clear look of what it looks like, a before and an after shot of a changed life in God. Here's the before picture. You're going to see it in verses 1 through 7 of Luke 19. You'll see Zacchaeus as a selfish sinner. That's the before shot. Zacchaeus as a selfish sinner. Let's set the context. Let's read verse 1 together. Verse 1 of chapter 19 says this, He, Jesus, enters Jericho, and he was passing through. So we arrive on the Jesus caravan as he's headed to Jerusalem one last time. That's the place he will make a triumphal entry. He'll be arrested. He'll be crucified. He will rise again, and he will eventually ascend to be with the Father. So this is this trip he's on here, and he's going through Jericho. His route is from east to west because Jericho is about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem uh, to the east on your map there. Uh, you might know the city from its Old Testament fame, the one with the shaky walls that came tumbling down, right? But this is a different city. That city was destroyed, and right near there, there was this booming metropolis that was built by uh, Herod, and it had pools and aqueducts, all kinds of fancy city features that made it a great place. Herod actually even built a winter fortress there because the culture, um, the climate was so nice. He built a fortress there. History tell us, tells us the gruesome story of Herod in Jericho when he lived there was so jealous, he went into a rage and actually had his own son drown there because he thought his son would take over him. So Jericho had some history. This is where uh, Christ was coming through. Because it was strategically located between Judea and Perea, 
a lot of people passed through there, which made it a great place to take some tolls and to collect some taxes. So you had a lot of Roman government folks working there, and they would work in the business of collecting money. Zacchaeus was one of them, as we read here in verse 2. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was a Jewish man, worked for the Roman government, but Jewish guy. His name actually means pure or holy or clean, but when it comes to his occupation, there was nothing clean about it. As a tax collector, he ran almost a pyramid scheme where he would have underlings under him that would tax abusively the Jewish people, and he would take a cut over every cruel tax that was collected. So he would sit there like a fat cat, so to speak, and soak up all the uh, money from the Roman oppression. It wasn't a well-liked guy. He was happy to join the Romans in taking advantage of the Jewish people here. But for his part, he was interested in meeting Jesus, we see. By this time in history, even King Herod has heard of Jesus. He was almost a rock star of sorts. He was a big ticket coming into town. And as he came into town, it was a standing room only situation which presented a problem to Zacchaeus that we see in verse 3. Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up in the sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass through. So the song is right. Zacchaeus was a short fellow. You might be interested to know, in America today, among the men, you know what the average height is? Anybody know? 5'10-ish, 5'10", right? Back then, among Jewish men in the first century, we've actually had archaeologists and sociologists study this. They'll, they'll dig up the remains of schools from that time period. And it's a guess, but as best as they could speculate, the average height in that time was 5'1". Average male height, Five, one. So if you have a picture of Jesus being 6'2", you might have to adjust that one. He probably wasn't. But we don't know for sure that the average height is 5'1". What does this make Zacchaeus, who was characterized as short? He may have been about 4'6", four, 4'5", four, guys. So he had a lot of problems when it came to seeing Jesus pass by. But we do know he could run because he outran the crowd to get to the tree, and he was limber enough to scamper up it to get this optimal position in viewing Jesus as he came by. And that brings us to verse 5, where we read, And when Jesus came to the place, Jesus looks up and he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus hurried, and he came down, and he received Jesus joyfully. At this point, it's helpful to look back a little bit to Luke 18 and recall the story that finishes off chapter 18 in Luke because that has Jesus as he's just entering the city. Right before he gets into the city, Jesus meets someone else. This is before, moments before he meets Zacchaeus, he runs into a blind man. But the scene there is much different. The scene there, as they're coming into the city, you have a, a blind man. He can't see, obviously, but he hears the crowd, right? And he knows that uh, the Son of Man, Jesus must be passing by. And so he yells out, to Jesus, Jesus! In faith, he yells out to Jesus, and Jesus responds. But here in our Zacchaeus story, something else is emphasized. 
right? Here in our narrative, we see the initiative of Christ himself. He calls out to the tree and he says, I must stay at your house, right? The father has ordained that if, if Zacchaeus is going to be changed, if salvation is going to come to his house, Christ must drop in. And so Jesus is pursuing him, just as elsewhere in the New Testament, he's called the good shepherd who won't lose any of the sheep that the father has given him. We see him here chasing the lost lamb. I don't know if you ever played when you were a kid a game of tag. Tag is cool, right? The game where you're stigmatized. If somebody touches you, everybody flees away from you until, if you're fleet of foot and not slow like me, you get to go and tag somebody else. And then he's the one who is it, right? Some of you four, six people have been seen playing this game inside our building here between services. I know who you are. But tag is cool. What's different than that is the game of freeze tag, right? I always felt a little more helpless when I played freeze tag because freeze tag, instead of when you're tagged, you get to go chase everybody. When you're tagged in freeze tag, what happens? You freeze, right? You can't move. You're immobilized until someone else is good enough to come to you. Someone outside yourself runs by, tags you, and then you're released. That's the idea here when Jesus is coming by. In order for salvation to come to Zacchaeus, Christ had to come outside of him. He had to come and initiate and unfreeze his soul. He had to come to Zacchaeus, and this is what we see of him. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus in a conscious way, loving, deliberately pursuing his people that God has given him. The problem is the crowd sees this too. Remember, there's a big show going on here, and everybody sees that as Jesus is walking through, Jesus, it would be common for him to stay at someone's house. They didn't do the hotel thing as much back then. They might have some boarding houses, but normally you stayed in the house of people you knew or people you wanted to get to know. So imagine the scene. If you're in that crowd, as Jesus is walking through, you might be thinking, hey, he might choose me. After all, I'm a faithful guy, or I'm a pretty good person, and he's a good teacher. Maybe he chooses me. And then you spot like a bird up in a tree, Zacchaeus, and you're like, oh, man, I hope Jesus doesn't see that, because he's the worst of us, right? He is the Talmini. He's a wicked man. And then Jesus is stopped, and he looks up, and he pursues Zacchaeus. How would the crowd react? We see it in verse 7. When they saw this, they all grumbled. Emphasis all. They all grumbled. Nobody liked it. Why? Because they said this. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What was he thinking? He picked the sinner, the cheat, the turncoat, the traitor. Could have stayed in anybody's house, but he picked the sinner. And I think this verse gives us the truest picture of who Zacchaeus was. Think about it. The crowd didn't groan. They didn't say, ah, he picked the shortest of us. That wasn't their complaint. They didn't say, oh, he picked the rich guy. What about the poor? I'm poor. Why didn't you? That wasn't it. They're like, oh, no, he picked the sinner. And that was Zacchaeus's identity in the eye of the people. He's a wicked evil, crass man. He rebels against God. In the Jewish society, a tax collector was 
so low down they were considered unclean. That meant, even to a tax collector, you were actually, it was acceptable to lie to them. Lying is a sin, but you could lie to a tax collector and it was okay because they were so low. If you were raising your children, homeschooling your little Jewish kids, you would have taught them every day, okay, accept everybody, but shun the tax collectors because they're so bad, they're so wicked. And that's who he was. He's seen in his before shot a wicked, evil man against God, against his people. The Apostle Paul has some different words about being a sinner in Ephesians 2. Paul describes sinners in this, on these terms. He says, sinners are people who are dead in their trespasses in which they once walked. They're following the course of this world. They're following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, by the way. They're, they're devil followers. We all once lived in these passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath, under the anger of God himself. That's how Paul views people who are sinners. And I thought at this point, and I wanted to stop and just ask the question, how easy is it for you to view people outside of the church as under the wrath of God, as that as their identity. They bear the image of God, but they're also headed for hell. They're headed for punishment. When I meet people outside the church, sometimes I tend to identify them by some personality trait. Maybe, hey, that guy's a funny guy. I don't remember him. He's funny. Or that guy's successful. He's made a career. He's successful. That's who he is. Uh, Anything like that. But that's not how the scripture will define people. I think it's helpful for me to think, That guy, no matter what I think of his status or his personality, he's under God's wrath. And if Christ does not intervene through the gospel, through the church, this man will spend forever under the wrath of God. I think that will change how I interact, how I think about, how I pray for, how I speak to the unbelievers in my sphere of influence. Well, that's the picture, the grisly one, the before shot of Zacchaeus. Speaking metaphorically, you know, as in these pictures, he's, Zacchaeus is seen in the dim lighting. There's no moral makeup on him. He's spiritually slumped over. There's a depressed look on his soul. He's postured so as to look guilty before God. That is who Zacchaeus is before Christ. But now let's look at the after picture. After he meets, meets Jesus, things change. Or Zacchaeus. What happens when you experience the power of God, the glorious power of God in Jesus Christ? Things change if you truly experience him. So here's the after picture seen in verses 8 and 9 in our text. You see Zacchaeus as the selfless servant. Zacchaeus becomes a selfless servant. Before he was a ripoff artist. Now he's a servant of God and his people. And as we continue through here, I want you to note that as Zacchaeus responds, where we left him, everybody was grumbling. Ah, I can't believe they chose him. He's a sinner. Watch his response. It's not directed at the people who were complaining. Interestingly enough, his response to their complaints is directed at Jesus. That's because when you change, when Christ comes into your life, Jesus becomes the focal point. 
Men are secondary. You love people, but you fear only the Lord. So we see in verse 8, we're going to pick this apart a little bit, Zacchaeus responding. We don't know where he said this. Could have been right down out of the tree. Could have been in his house. But the way he says it kind of makes us think it's public. So he is responding, but he addresses it right at Jesus. Aims his thoughts right at Jesus. Verse 8, he says, we're told that Zacchaeus stands up and he says to the Lord, behold, Lord. And if you stop right there, you can see already that something happened. We're not told exactly how it happened, but suddenly after Christ came to him, Christ has set up a home in Zacchaeus' heart. The famous carpenter is not just a sideshow now. He's his master. Christ has moved from the limelight to lordship because he's calling him Lord, Lord. The term of submission, the term of recognizing Christ's authority, term that will morph into affection. But how does this happen? In the text, we're not told the behind-the-scenes stuff because that's not really the emphasis, right? We're not told how he was converted. We're just told that he had this dramatic change when he encountered Jesus. But Ephesians 2 is helpful. Again, in Paul's words, beginning in verse 4, he begins to describe, Paul does, what happens behind the scenes when someone is changed, when they're converted from this before to the after in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says, verse 4 of Ephesians 2. Paul says, but God, so that's the personal being behind the change in Zacchaeus. He's being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That's the motivation behind the change. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That's the change, moving from deadness to God to being alive to God. That's the God-Christ-exalting change that we see in Zacchaeus. By grace, you have been saved. Paul says this twice, telling us how the change happened. By grace, you have been saved through faith. God gives you the gift of being able to see him clearly. We call that faith. He gives you the gift of being able to treasure him. By grace, you have been saved. Not a result of works, so that no one may we don't know exactly what happened, but we know that Zacchaeus didn't pay his way into the kingdom of God. He didn't start acting nice as he met Jesus to work his way into. No, Paul said his gift of grace was totally on a one-sided incident. It was God giving himself to Zacchaeus. And look in verse 10 of Ephesians 2. Paul writes, we are now his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Did you catch that? When we meet Jesus, we are recreated a certain way for good works. We'll see that in Zacchaeus. Good works are specific life-consuming words and actions flow from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says these attitudes of the Spirit will actually fuel how we live. Attitudes of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit which will change us, change the way we talk, change the way we live, change the way we are to fulfill this after picture in Jesus. And you see it here in verse 8 if we look closer 
Zacchaeus has two concrete ways in which he is changed when he meets Jesus. Things that did not used to be now are because of Christ. Look in verse 8. First, Zacchaeus says, half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor. Half of all of my own, all of my net worth, I'm going to cut that in half and I'm going to give it to the poor. You may think, well, why would he do that? Well, in Luke, the emphasis of Christ, the mission of Christ, what Christ was about was coming to the poor and the lowly. And so it's appropriate for Zacchaeus to say, all right, I'm Jesus's now. I'm giving half of all my stuff to the cause of Christ, to the poor. In Judaism, if you gave 20% of your stuff away, that was considered generous. That was the mark in Judaism. If you gave 20%, he's giving 50% here. That's the heart striving to reflect the mercy and character of God. But there's another concrete way in, in which you see his good works flowing forth in this verse. Read the rest of verse 8. Not only did he give half of his stuff away, but now he's starting at half of where he was. He may be a poor man now. He started off rich. He may be a less rich man, or he may be poor now, but he's got half of what he used to have. And then he says, and, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to restore it fourfold. Now he's digging deeper. This is a financial point, and it could be in his line of work as a tax collector. Don't forget, he could have choose, cheated all of the people he took a tax from, but then he had his underlings, right? His secondary people, he was probably cheating them too. He had a lot of money to pay back, but the emphasis here, though, is in relational reconciliation. The reason he's wanting to pay them back is he knows that he now must be reconciled. Because Christ has reconciled him to God, he now seeks to reconcile himself to others. And so he's going to pay this stuff back, pay his debt to others as Christ has paid the debt for his own sin. So that's the after picture of Zacchaeus. It's a selfless servant. And what I want you to do here as we're looking in the face of Zacchaeus, as we're walking away from this text now as we have encountered it, I think we should be challenged as much as comforted. In a text like this, I think you're meant to read it and bump your life up aside Zacchaeus and say, oh, he's a changed man. I'm a changed person. What should be going on in my heart? And challenge yourself. So here's three challenges in light of this text today, three challenges for you this week. Here's the first one. And it has to do with remembering who you were before Christ. I spent some time with our community group and our leaders this week discussing this a little bit. It was very helpful. Remembering who you were before Christ. There's several benefits of that. Here's one of them. If you think back to who you were before Christ, in your before picture, you were someone in need of forgiveness. And Christ came and initiated forgiveness to you. In light of that, What's stopping you from forgiving others in your life? Your spouse, your parents, your kids who aren't measuring up to your expectations. What is stopping you from forgiving others? I'm going to give you the answer. You might not like it, but I'm going to give it to you. The answer is you are self-righteous. If you find yourself in a position where it's hard for you to forgive people in your life, it's because... You are self-righteous. Think about what happens when somebody wrongs you. You think sometimes, oh man, I would never do that to anybody. 
That's so offensive. What kind of person are you? You're unworthy of my affections, but worthy of my fury, right? I'm thankful God didn't mimic you when he originally dealt with you, right? Because Christ didn't treat you that way. But because us, having forgotten who we were before we were saved, we now treat people in an unforgiving way. We swell up in our own self-righteousness. Think about it like this. Let's say uh, you get angry with your spouse because they haven't done the dishes. And you think, you know what? You do the dishes this much, and I do the dishes this much. How dare you, right? But guess what? The difference between you and them, all of that's a gift of grace. All of the righteousness that you have where you begin to think, I'm better than that person, so I can't forgive them until they come up to here. All of the difference is God. It's the work of God's grace. You're lying to me, and I'm not a liar. I'm a truth teller, and you lie all the time. I'm not going to forgive you until you come up to here. The same thing. The only difference between you and the liar is the work of God's grace. The righteousness that we hold on to in ourselves so much is all a gift of God. It's kind of like this weekend if you're a football fan. NFL draft was happening this weekend. Those of us who get into the draft, here's what happens. You have your team, and you want them to take a certain player, right? And so to help them along, what I'll do is I'll research all the players and I'll pick my favorite, right? And then I'll sit in the same spot where I think I sat in 1992 when the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. I'll sit in that spot. I'll put on my Cowboys jersey and my Cowboys hat and I'll tell the screen, pick him, pick him, pick him. And when their pick comes in, they pick my running back. And I'm like, yes, I did it. I did my part so that my team would pick the one I want. I didn't do that. That wasn't my own work. Or it's like my drive on the way to work. Here's what my drive is. I can't even get out of my neighborhood in the morning because traffic is so tight and so full on the road that I live on. People have to stop and actually wave me in, right? Or I'm never getting in. Can't nose in there. But people will stop and they'll let me in. And what, how silly it would be if I got in and I look back at the other people in line. It's like, ha ha, I'm a better driver than you. I got in and you didn't, right? That was a gift. Somebody just let me in. And that's the way God's grace is. Sadly, though, in our relationships, we become prideful because God has given us progress in areas that others don't have. So when we see their sin, we're appalled by it. Forgetting our entrance onto the road to holiness was just a gift. God waved you in. You didn't nose into your sanctification. The truth is most of us have at least one person in our life that we could forgive that don't deserve it. That's your first challenge. Now, I know the temptation here. The temptation is that, hey, I forgive everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm hurt a lot at other people. I'm hurt at you but I've forgiven you. But oftentimes under the hurt, there's still some self-righteousness because you're hurt, because your pride's been offended. So that's your challenge this week. Pick someone, write their name down right now on your device, on your phone, on your pad. Write the name down of one person who doesn't deserve your forgiveness, but you're going to seek to give it to because of who you are in Christ. Here's the second challenge. This text, if nothing else, it's a call to examine your own generosity. 
Let me ask you something. Why in this text of personal transformation, why do you think they emphasized that to be changed is to be generous? Think about it. Zacchaeus' speech, in his speech he could have said, Jesus, I'm changed now. I'm going to be a man who prays all the time. He could have done that. Prayer is good. Or he could have said, i got free time on my hands, and I'm going to serve the church. That's at the heart of what it is to follow Christ. In fact, we know that Zacchaeus, through history, became a church leader, so we know he had time to serve, but that's not what's emphasized here. Zacchaeus didn't say, I've got encouraging words now, and I'm going to change the way I speak to people, and that's going to be the mark of my true change. Why did they pick money? Well, he was a tax collector, but for him... Something about our money gets to the heart. He knew what the Bible says. Where your treasure is, there your heart's going to follow also. God picked to bring out this generosity piece because he knows that if we don't give our money, it's a sign that Christ is not our Lord. Tim Keller puts it this way. He said, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours but God's. And that's what it is to follow Christ. Realizing that your whole everything is not yours, but it's God's. Zacchaeus goes straight to the heart, and he commits to be financially generous in a way that he hasn't ever before. And he's a great model for us, too, because he goes to the Lord. He turns to Jesus and talks about his finances. So there's a second challenge. Even today, you can set apart some time and ask the Lord, am I being financially generous as you would have me be. I want to be this after picture. Am I being generous? Take a further step and then ask somebody, hey, where do you think I could go? You know me. You know where I spend my money. You know my lifestyle. Where do you think I could be more generous? You'll be amazed at how the Spirit can use the work of the church to open up your heart to generosity. And finally, I want us to leave here challenged by the greatness of Christ's power. I want you to be challenged by the greatness of Christ's power. If he can change Zacchaeus by the resurrection power and make him alive to God, he can certainly change the lost people in your life, your friends and family. Think about it. One day before Jesus came into town, nobody would have picked Zacchaeus as the one who was going to change. The tax collector, man, he was the center of the town. Some towns have town drunks. This one had a town center. It was Zacchaeus. A day after, he's a completely different person. You wouldn't have saw it coming. So may it be with the people in your life. Let's face it, we all struggle, I think, when we're having conversations with unbelievers and believing that they can really change. This week, I uh, was hanging out with a good friend of mine, and we talked about the same stuff we always talk about hobbies and whatnot, how's the family, and I spoke a little bit about Jesus to him, and, uh, you know, with glassy eyes, no response, known him a while as a good friend, walked away from the conversation, and I thought to myself, man, he's going to spend the rest of his life focusing on these menial things, following these gods of the world, and I stopped myself, and I thought, no, no, God might change him tomorrow. I will not quit sharing with him. I'll not quit showing up and sharing about the glory of Christ and how he can transform people. And that'll be your third challenge this week. Who who can you go to 
Who can you go to and share about the transformational glory of Jesus Christ? You know, in this text, Jesus ends the whole scene. The last word is from Jesus. You know what he says? The Son of Man came for what? To seek and to save the lost. That's Ezekiel talking, as he always seems to be doing. Jesus is being influenced by the Old Testament. This uh, seek and save the lost mantra comes from Ezekiel 34. I just want to read to you the messianic promise from Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 11, because it's, it's comforting to me and challenging It makes me want to be more bold when I remember the promise that God made that he is going to seek out his people and save whomever he wants to save. Listen to this. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, and they have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places. I'll feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel to be the grazing land. And they shall lie down in good grazing land. Verse 15, I myself will be their shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. All of this I talk is coming through you, the church. Jesus isn't here anymore, but God can complete his purposes for all the folks he wants to save through you and your gospel witness. So that's your challenge this week. Tell someone about the transformational glory of Jesus, how he can change someone from this before picture to the after. So in this this text today, as we leave, I really want to highlight how Zacchaeus has changed. Who he was before, selfish sinner, is not who he was after Jesus, a selfless servant. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so happy you're here. I just want to say to you that an after picture awaits. If you meet Christ, he can change you, revolutionize your life. If you're here as a believer, a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you too have an aftershot. Your choice is, am I going to live in it this week? Am I going to put on my new self this week by extending forgiveness to the one who hurt you? or giving your money freely to the Lord's purposes, or sharing the glory of Christ with all the Zacchaeuses in your world. You have a choice to live, not like who you were before, but who you are after in Jesus Christ. In just a moment after I pray, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. What a moment for you to reflect on the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and how he's transformed you to walk in good works. So if you're a visitor here and you're not a believer, we just ask you to watch us during this time. It's a family meal. But if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, we welcome you after we pray. Get up. There's some tables at the front. There's a table at the back. Whenever you're ready to go, take the elements and bring them back to your seat and have the Lord's Supper. But in doing so, 
we ask you to meditate on this glorious God that can take people from the aftershot, from the foreshot to the aftershot, where you're living in hope, a changed person in light of the gospel. So let me pray for us, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. God, we do ask now, change those of us here who tend not to want to show forgiveness to the people in our lives. Change those of us here who are holding back part of our finances and saying, this is mine, the rest is yours. Change us into Zacchaeus-like folks who are overflowing with generosity because of who you have made us to be. And God, change us to people who would actually verbally share with our parents, with our kids, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our bosses, the glorious transformational power of Jesus Christ. And God, if someone is here who is not your follower, what a moment, what a day to pull a Zacchaeus Yank them out of darkness into light, from death to life. God, I call upon you to do it today by the power of your spirit. As we take your table, Lord, work in us. Work in us humility because everything we have is a gift of grace as a believer. Why not show more grace to one another? So we ask all these things and many more blessings in Jesus Christ.